To struggle with your faith is the surest sign that you have one. Have you ever struggled with your faith? I have struggled so much with my faith and my reading of the Bible. Well, A.J. Swoboda, in his book, After Doubt, writes that statement. To struggle with your faith is the greatest sign that you have one. It's been true of my experience, and it's all about questioning your faith without losing it. How I see God in the Bible has been all over the map. And the years between 17 and 23, my life experiences didn't match up with the faith that I held. So many of the quick statements of faith, these creedal formulations, just seem shallow. The church didn't respond to the depth of my pain, the way life had hit me. Even at Bible college 20 years ago, my questions weren't discussed as much as they were dismissed. Maybe you've experienced something similar. For so many church communities, my struggles served as a prediction that I was losing faith rather than a process of strengthening it. If you've been struggling with your faith or reading the Bible, which is what we've been talking about over the past number of weeks, or have doubts, I want to encourage you to lean into the process because it's actually through the process that your faith grows stronger. Well, God's character in Genesis proves to be one of these areas for me. Why is God so cruel when Adam and Eve fall, when they fail? Why does he set them up to fall? Why does he set them up for failure? More personally, why do I keep failing? With each failure, it feels like God becomes more and more begrudging, more and more angry, as if I'm using up his grace. Well, today, I want to talk about Adam and Eve. If you've been following along, you may be saying to yourself, oh my God, again, we're going to be talking about Adam and Eve. We've been talking about them for like weeks. Can we just get past Genesis 2 and 3? Well, I want to talk about them because I've read this passage a hundred times. I've read books and I've heard messages about it, but something two weeks ago clicked in my brain in a way that I hadn't seen it before. It stopped me, dead my tracks, and it caused me to ask not what am I reading here, but how am I reading this story? I had to ask myself, what would happen if my focus shifted? If I, if I read this story slightly differently, I believe our focus informs our faith. Too often we get stuck on one thing and we miss out on all the other options that the text has to offer. So here's a first study point for you. It's been eye-opening for me. If you want to start getting to to know the Bible and getting more excited about what you're reading, we have to ask what's happening in this text. But we can't stop there. We have to ask what else is happening in this text? We have to explore the options and not get hyper-focused on one thing. So we're going to jump into Genesis 3, but before we get there, let me refresh your memory. Adam and Eve have been created by God. Adam was created outside the garden. He was placed inside the garden to rule and to reign and have control over all the animals. And God gives Adam Eve, and he gives them everything in the garden to participate from, to eat from. He gives them all the provision they need. And yet they disobey. He, he gives them limit of one thing. Do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they eat. This is where our story picks up. What happens next? Genesis 3, verses 8 through 13. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man, where are you? He answered, 
I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's a dramatic story. And this narrative has been used all kinds of ways. And we've highlighted different aspects of it over the past couple of weeks. But I have always read this chapter as an explanation for why I always mess up. How there's good things that I want to do, but there's this struggle inside of me. And I just, I find myself not doing it, even though I know what I want to do. And because I can't do the things I want to do, Since I'm always messing up, God is, for some reason, angry and disappointed. Just like God is angry at Adam and Eve for messing up his perfect creation. This sets the stage for how I read the rest of the Bible, how I see God's frustration and anger with all of humanity from here forward. Now, this is kind of a classic view within the church, almost as if God is cruel up until Christ. It's almost like God is cruel up until Christ. We have an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. And the Old Testament God is a God of judgment and cruelty. And then Christ comes along and it's a God of mercy and grace. Looking at Genesis 2 and 3, it's not so much what I'm reading, but how I'm reading it. And it all comes back to my focus. Where am I focused? Have you ever received a text message from somebody and it's just made you go, what in the world are they talking about? There's a lack of punctuation. It's confusing grammar. There's kind of this indirect response to your text or your message, and you can't tell if they agree, they disagree, or if they even understood what you said. That's how I feel reading the Bible. Why is this? Mainly because I only see words. I don't hear the voice. I don't hear the tone. I don't see the person speaking. Left with just the text on the page, there's too many options. I attended a synagogue for a number of years, and one rabbi used to say that there are two texts on every page. There's a text that is in black, and the words, the text that is written in white. Now, what in the world is he talking about? He is referring to the white space between all the letters. The words, the the letters, the in black, convey meaning. And we can read those, but too often, and this is natural, We fill in all the white space around those letters with our our experience, our culture, our perspectives, our emotions, even our own baggage. We bring it to the text. And I want to go through Genesis 3 with that in mind. Have you ever thought about what God's movement through the garden looked like? Verse 8 says, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. The text says they heard God and hid. Now, I've always read this, that they hid because there was something in God to fear. Have you read it that way? They hide because God, they need to hide from God because God's character is something that should be hidden. Well, at age eight, my friend and I had this amazing idea to create a new game. We would take gravel from our driveway. And what we would do is cars drove by in front of our house. We would see who could take this rock and skip it across the road underneath the car and get it to the other side. 
Well, about we tested this out. It was an excellent test of our aim and our timing. We're chucking rocks across the road as cars are driving by, and we get through the first five cars, and everything seems okay until that sixth car hits the brakes, sees us in the rearview mirror, backs up. At that moment, what did we do? We ran. Like, we realized in that moment, when that sixth car stopped, that rocket passed underneath. This wasn't a good idea. Like, the reality of how bad an idea this game was hit us. We felt foolish, we felt dumb, and we ran. Because we knew that there was likely going to be consequences. My friend and I ran. We ran to the back of the yard as the driver knocked on our front door. We hid behind the woodpile, just waiting. And I had kind of this fear of the consequences not because of who was going to confront me. So my mom was home that day. And the picture of how my mom would handle this situation was completely different of how the picture of my dad handling that situation would be. I pictured my mom coming and enforcing consequences. My dad, if he were home, he would have been coming to enforce some cruel consequences. Like it would have been the end of my life. But I knew mom was home. That picture changed my understanding of the situation. That's what happens in Genesis. Too often our picture of who God is fills in the white spaces around this story and we fear a cruel God. Your picture of God shapes how you experience this text. Our goal is to see the text as it is and to paint a picture of who God is based on the words in the text rather than filling in our perspective into the white areas. How do you visualize God moving through the garden? Does he rush towards you as an angry father, just ready to instill punishment? Does he realize something bad has happened and he comes looking to provide help? Is God coming gently to find Adam and Eve who are experiencing pain and shame for the first time, looking to, to comfort or provide hope? It's not enough to ask what's happening to sex. We have to ask what else could be happening. We got to go on. Verse 9 says, the Lord God called the man, where are you? Now, in the Hebrew, this question is really just one word, Aeka, where are you? And I can't tell you how many times I've read a text from my wife asking me when I'll be home. And immediately I started thinking to myself, is she mad? Did I do something? Am I not aware of something? Is she pressuring me to come home now? Are the boys exhausting her? I've got two boys that can just be off the wall sometimes. What am I walking into when I come home? All these things, all these emotions, my own insecurities, my own fears fill in all the white space around that text. Only later find out she was just wanting to know a timeline and everything was going great at home. How do you fill in the white space of this question? Where are you? When you think of God asking, where are you after you've messed up? What kind of voice do you hear? What emotions do you experience? Let's look at some of the options. Remember, it's not enough to ask what is happening. We have to ask what else could be happening. Is God's voice angry? Does it sound harsh to you? Is he annoyed? Is he bitter? Is he discouraged or disappointed? Is he concerned? Is he caring? Is he fearful? Is he protective? Is he protective in the sense that he just realized that Adam and Eve had been deceived by a serpent and he doesn't want anything worse to happen to them? In his question, where are you? Could he be conveying an invitation back into relationship? 
Where are you in this relationship right now? Where is your heart? What are the options that stand before us as we hear God's voice in this text? There's two things I see in this passage that help us inform how we hear these words. Adam is afraid of the consequences, not God's character. And second, Adam is surprised by God's provision, not his punishment. First, Adam is afraid of the consequences, not God's character. Have you ever noticed the reason why Adam and Eve hide? The text says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. I was at a pool party years ago, and one guy didn't bring the appropriate bathing suit, so he jumped into the swimming pool with tan mesh shorts on. As he climbed out, it was revealed that the shorts were completely see-through when wet. He immediately jumped back into the pool, hide himself. Like, that was the only thing he could do. His action, jumping in unprepared, led to an immediate consequence. His shorts were see-through. And what happened? He hid himself. There was an action that caused a reaction. He jumped back in. Adam and Eve seemed to hide because he is experiencing the consequences of his actions. Shame for a foolish decision, like me throwing the rocks underneath the car. I realized I'd done something foolish and I wanted to hide. It's not because of God's anger or hostility. And that's incredibly different because you don't need a cruel God to have consequences. You don't need to have a cruel God to have consequences. Cruelty and consequences are two different things. When someone goes to court for driving under the influence and the judge issues them a fine, we don't call that judge cruel. We say he got what he deserved, right? He received the consequence for his actions. And just because there are consequences doesn't mean that the judge is cruel. Now, the judge can be cruel in the consequences they enforce or how they enforce them, but there's no hint of that here. Seeing God as angry and disappointed has caused me to miss so much in this text. Did you know God is never described as angry in the book of Genesis? Never. It's never said of him. Not only that, but Princeton professor Mark Smith in his book, The Genesis of Good and Evil, notes that Adam and Eve have not fallen. Rather, their conditions in life have. In other words, the world has fallen. Moreover, their relationship, speaking of Adam and Eve, became fraught. By comparison, no such problem in their relationship with God is addressed. Nowhere in Genesis 2 and 3 does it say that there is this disconnect between God and Adam. Genesis 3 is not a picture of a cruel God. The second thing that I observe in this passage is that Adam is surprised by God's provision rather than his punishment. The breakdown of human relationships and the created order is the outcome of Adam's decision. But even in the midst of this consequence, Adam received incredible provision. So what happens here in this text? Adam and Eve disobey, but what is God's response? God provides a way to restore the relationship. He, he calls out to Adam and Eve, where are you? Second, God provides mercy. Adam and Eve... In the ancient Near Eastern world, it's expected as that the ancient Near Eastern audience is reading this, that God is just going to obliterate Adam and Eve. They've messed up. They're done. God doesn't do that. God provides a better covering for their shame and nakedness. Adam and Eve sew together rough fig leaves, and God provides a full covering. God provides authority over the serpent, the very thing that deceived them. God says, Adam and Eve, you now have ownership over them. You are going to rule over serpents. 
Genesis 4 and Genesis 4.25, God provides offspring. He allows them to have children to carry on a line of hope. And then in Genesis 4.26, it says, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Finally, one thing that I've missed over and over again reading this in this particular way, looking at the anger of God, my failure, I never noticed that Adam and Eve are limited from the tree of life. They're pushed out of the garden. But in being pushed out of the garden, there's no mention of being pushed out of God's presence. They may be removed from paradise, but they're not removed from God's presence. God's presence goes with them. What is all this pointing to? What is all this pointing to? Too often, I focus on my own failure and I miss God's faithfulness. If my focus is on my failure, if I'm hyper-focused on the failure of Adam and Eve, then my faith will never be shaped around God's faithfulness. I love Isaiah 43. It's got some amazing lines in it. It says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. That last line reminds me of creation of Genesis 2 when God forms man and springs well up on the ground to water the earth. And what is he saying? I'm doing a new thing. Israel was challenged to look beyond their past because it caused them to lose sight of what God was calling them to now and where God was taking them. How do we know that this reading of Adam and Eve's story is a credible way to approach it? Well, Adam and Eve and their sin is never mentioned in the Hebrew Bible after Genesis 4. In fact, Adam in this story is only mentioned once more at the very end of the Hebrew Bible in the book of Chronicles in a genealogy. Why is Adam listed there? To show the people of Israel that since the beginning of time, God has been faithful. And in Israel's current period of national unrest, God is going to remain faithful. Adam and Eve's decision to eat of the tree isn't mentioned until about the first century BC, around the time of Jesus. And even here, most of the references discussed talk about why things are the way they are, but ultimately point beyond Adam. They're giving us a future. What's happening just before Jesus' birth? Well, Greek culture and philosophy are taking root in and around Jerusalem, and they start asking questions that the text never addressed or focused on. We've been talking about this for a number of weeks. A different mindset coming to a Jewish text. And we see this thread find its way in the New Testament. Now, it's important to know that Jesus doesn't mention the Garden of Eden or Adam and Eve's choice to disobey. But Paul picks up on these Greco-Roman questions and addresses them head on. And it's amazing. In Paul's letter to the Romans and to the Corinthians, Paul discusses the disobedience of Adam and the nature of all of humanity. Again, we can get caught in discussing how Adam's choices reflect the choices of every individual since his time. It's not an issue of what happened then, but it's an issue of what always happens. But that's not where Paul wishes us to focus. In Romans 5, he draws our focus to something much greater. He uses the phrase, how much more in a strategic way? He basically says, if Adam's failure impacts us, how much more then 
does Jesus's faithfulness. If sin follows us, how much more than does God's grace free us? If death has power, how much more does the life of Jesus? If sin influences human nature, how much more does God's faithfulness through Jesus's abundance of grace and free gift of righteousness influence human nature? How much more? It's not a focus on Adam's failure, but it's a focus on God's faithfulness. Paul looks at our situation. He acknowledges like things are messed up. They're not the way they're supposed to be. But he goes from there to remind us that Jesus's faithfulness is so much more impactful than Adam's failure. Paul shifts our focus. Two chapters later, he would talk about the power of the Spirit to bring about change in our lives, the same Spirit of God that that breathed life into humanity at the beginning of Genesis 1 and 2. All this points to the fact that Genesis 2 and 3 is the starting narrative of God's restoration, of his faithfulness. In the midst of failure, God says, I am faithful. Our focus impacts our faith. Are you focused on your failures or on God's faithfulness? How do you view God in the midst of your failure? When you've thrown that rock and realized your foolishness, how do you picture God? I want to challenge you to rethink his voice, his tone. Are you missing something amazing and hopeful because you're focused on the problem rather than God's provision? We're going to conclude today with a song called Graves into Gardens. And it celebrates God's character and his provision. I don't know what failure you may be carrying today, but I want you to hear that your failure does not define you. That your failure does not limit God. That your failure does not determine your future. That God does not reach down begrudgingly to help. Nor does he confront you with anger but he walks alongside you and wraps his arms of grace around you and covers you with his mercy. When it feels like you're facing only despair, he is willing and ready to breathe new life into you. As the opening lines of this song state, then you came along and put me back together. That is the story of Genesis. For every flaw and every failure, God comes along and joyfully, lovingly puts us back together together.